Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You'll turn in your copy of the scripture uh, there. I'm going to read the beatitude that we'll explore this morning, and we'll then launch into the exposition teaching of the living word of the living God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Jesus said this, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Our subject this morning, as you probably already know, is our coming inheritance. The story is told of a college student commenting on this beatitude said to her fellow collegian, you and I both know that the meek get ground into the earth. The student's perspective was similar to that of the philosopher Nietzsche's, the atheist philosopher who rephrased Jesus' words this way, quote, assert yourself. It is the arrogant who take over the earth. End of quote. Uncomprehended by the student and the philosopher was that Jesus had in mind a different kind of meek people and a future world to come. The meek, or the gentle, as our text calls us, are a subset of humanity who will, because of divine promise and divine power, indeed inherit the earth. Specifically, who are these people? I like to call them the inheritors, and that indeed is the heading uh, that we will launch into, the inheritors. They belong to a realm that the people of this world know nothing about, the kingdom of God. You really can't explain this realm, this realm of salvation, because it is foreign to them. It is foreign to their thinking. They know, have no comprehension of the kingdom of heaven. The inheritors of the earth are therefore God's people. They belong to him by saving faith in Jesus Christ. They heard the gospel message and they believe by the work of the Holy Spirit and they've trusted Christ alone for their salvation. And at that very moment they entered the kingdom of heaven and they belong to God. Because of that, Jesus calls them blessed. That's why he repeats the word blessed, blessed, blessed throughout the Beatitudes because they are blessed. The only blessed people in the world are those who belong to Christ, those who are in the kingdom of heaven. And now these blessed people, you and me, let's personalize it here, we were once in the same spiritual boat as they are currently. We're in the same boat as the philosopher and the student that I mentioned earlier in this little message. And all other believers, same spiritual boat as the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day. The inheritors, us, once were cursed. But now we are the fortunate ones. That word blessed could be understood that way. We are the ones who experience bliss. That word blessed can be understood in that term. The ones who are happy because they're eternally right with God. We are eternally right with God. Therefore, we are the truly happy ones. Our happiness is not dependent upon our circumstances, not dependent upon the vicissitudes of life. If things are good, we're happy. If things are bad, we're sad. No, we're happy because we have a right relationship with God. There's really a link in these things, a link in these beatitudes. The first two Beatitudes 
tell us um, the story, our spiritual story, our, our spiritual life. Uh, first, when we saw a couple of weeks ago, blessed are the poor in spirit. In the grace of God and his mercy to us, we recognize our spiritual destitution. We understood that we had no ability to get out of debt to God. None. Our debt we incurred because of our rebellion, because of our sin. We broke his law. And that debt that we incurred is of infinite value. We had nothing with which to pay up. It's an infinite obligation. There's no, no installment plan available. And if we had to make installment payments, it would take us eternity in hell to pay it, and we'd never have it paid off. It's a debt that we cannot resolve, or could not resolve. Therefore, we had one alternative, and that is this. We needed the forgiveness of God. We were desperate for his grace and for his forgiveness. And those who, poor in spirit, receive that. And we saw our sin. You get the link here. We saw our sin that caused us to incur this debt. We recognize this by the grace of God. And then in our sin and sinfulness before God, it caused us to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. It's the next link. We, we grieved over that. We grieved not because we uh, were caught. We grieved because we recognized we had offended holy God. And we saw ourselves then in light of his holiness and righteousness. And now, verse 5, we're gentle. We're meek before him because we've seen ourselves as we are, as we were. The word gentle is one of the English words used to translate the Greek praus and here in our text. It can also be rendered as meek. It can be rendered as humble. It can be rendered as self-control. All of those are legitimate uh, interpretive alternatives for this word praus in the original language. But meek is a good rendition in English. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament defines Meek as a person as, quote, one who feels that he is in a servant relationship to God and who subjects himself to him quietly and without resistance. That's a meek person. Isn't that interesting? Once we were in rebellion, once we were cosmically treasonous, but now we are meek before him and we find ourselves in subjection to his authority, his will. Haddon Robinson illustrates this submission for us by telling the story of a young soldier in the Peloponnesian Wars who wrote to his fiancée about a gift he had for her. It was a white stallion. He described it as the most magnificent animal, quote, I have ever seen. He responds obediently to the slightest command. He allows his master to direct him to his full potential. Then he wrote, he is a meek horse. 
The soldier wasn't saying that the horse was shy or that he was like an old plow horse that allows people to beat him. He was an animal with great spirit. But the spirit was submissive to the rider. End of quote. Likewise, the person who is gentle or meek or humble, the ones who will inherit the earth, are submissive to the Lord. They yield to his will. They yield to his authority. They come under his commands. And they do what he wants. And this is not something that the meek do uh, because somehow they're able to gin up the ability to do this. This is really the work of, the, of God, the Holy Spirit, in their life, in our life. This quality of meekness, this quality of humility, this self-control that we express as believers is the work of the Spirit of God. You recall, won't you, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, in that enumeration of the fruit of the Spirit, there's one listed here that's relevant particularly to our study this morning. It's gentleness. Gentleness. This divinely wrought trait in the child of God is valuable, valuable in the eyes of God. We see this truth in uh, 1 Peter 3 and 4, verses, chapter 3, verse 4. Peter there, as you recall, is writing particularly uh, to the Christian women who are married to an unbelieving husband and how they are to win them without the word. Peter writes concerning their adornment. He says in verse 4, Let it be uh, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Hmm. Isn't that wonderful? It's precious in the sight of God. Whenever we're meek, whenever we express humility, whenever we express self-control, that is a precious thing in God's sight. I'm going to tell you, I think you agree with me that anything that's precious in God's sight, anything that God esteems, anything that God values highly, you certainly want to see in your own life. Now, the question may be asked, and the question should be raised. How do you know if you're being meek or humble or gentle? How do you know this? Thankfully, Scripture does not leave us to spiritual speculation. Isn't that good to know? We can know because Scripture uh, tells us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, provides a litany of virtues that are to be displayed in the Christian's life. They are to be the Christian's spiritual dress wear. When you read that passage and you read through there, you can see it. That's what's being said. It's how we're to dress. We're to be submissive. To Christ. And submission to his will. How do you know? Number one, submissiveness. Submission to the will of God. And you'll see in that list of uh, virtues there, uh, there's the word gentle. Or meekness. So if that is how you are, if that is how you live, then you know that you are indeed gentle if you're submissive to the will of God. 
There's another one in James chapter 1. And in James chapter 1, we see another one of the characteristics that let us know whether we are meek or gentle. James 1, verse 21. James, uh, by the aside, he has a number of uh, things in his book that it appears that he got them directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Let's just, for a brief moment, unpack some of the things that are said here and then zero in on the thing that we want to focus on in particular. Filthiness that refers to moral vice. Wickedness. Evil desire. Get rid of all of that. Get that out of your life. And then in humility, here is the word, humility. Receive the word and plan it. Now let me just tell you, before I tell you what humility is here, let me tell you, this. the second thing is teachability. Teachability. You know you're meek, you know you're gentle if there is teachability in your life from the word of God. The word humility here in James chapter 1 verse 22 is a form of the same word used by Jesus in Matthew 5 5. It's a form of the word prouse. So if you want to know if you're humble, you're teachable. The word of God will come, you receive it. The word of God, humble, meek person does that. He or she is not haughty, he or she is not rebellious relative to the word of God, but humbly receives it. We have to be humble because guess what the word will do? It'll correct us, won't it? It'll show us our sin. It'll bust through our delusions about our spiritual grandeur. <laughs> It'll bring us down. It directs us on the path of righteousness. It edifies us. That is, it builds us up in divine truth number of things the word of God does for us and what we do, positive or negative, however it comes, whatever the circumstance that it is, we are to receive it and we are to do it with humility or meekness. It's submissiveness. The word which is able to save your soul. Now what this means is sanctification. Think about it like this. The word of God checks the growth of sin in our lives. Sin is like weeds that grow in a, a lawn. Homeowners, those that care about it, their lawn, employ a lawn service to apply chemicals to their yard to kill weeds like dandelions and clover, etc. The reception of the word by the meek believer will experience the killing of moral weeds in his or her life. That's what happens. This word is received. Those sinful things 
are destroyed. So we've seen thus far submissiveness to the will of God, teachability from the word of God. Thirdly, consideration of others. Ephesians 4, 2. Don't, don't go there because I'm going to stay here in James and take you back there. Ephesians 4, 2 says this, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. When believers relate to their fellow believers with meekness, they will be tolerant of them. And we all must be tolerant of one another, don't we? Because all of us, at times, believers can be thoughtless. Believers can say things that, eh, I shouldn't have said that. But the meek, the humble, tolerant of fellow believers. The arrogant are not tolerant. Then there's another. Another ind- indication of gentleness. I ask you to stay in James because James gives us this one. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise? In understanding, let him show by his good behavior in his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Hmm. Uh, gentleness of wisdom. What's a wise person? A wise person is skilled in righteous living. That person can apply God's truth to life situations in relationship to others. Walk with God, whatever this trial, as James tells us earlier. Meekness and gentleness is exhibited in these things. I'll tell you something. The greatest exemplar of these things is none other than who? I would say to you for answering Jesus Christ, you get an A. Jesus indeed is. He is the greatest example. He says in Matthew 11, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. (laughs) You will find rest for your souls. You know what that tells me? Uh, We're to emulate him. All these texts that we've just read and all that we'll read uh, successively, they're embodied in him, the perfect example of meekness or gentleness. And he had power and control, too, by the way. And that word self-control can be, and sometimes, well, Jesus, they say he's meek and mild. Yes, 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 he is. But he has power and control. Think about it. He never, ever did anything in defense of himself. Meekness. Show you that. First Peter. First Peter two. He never sought to defend himself. First Peter two twenty one. Let's start there. 
See what meekness is? Sometimes people think meekness is weakness. Hmm. No. It's power under control. Like that horse. More appropriately like our Lord. Verse uh, 21, 1 Peter 2 Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose, talking about sufferings theme, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Boy, that is so unlike us, isn't it? Somebody's going to revile us, I ain't getting away with that. He did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Hmm. Didn't defend himself. But he did defend the honor of the Father, didn't he? Because he entered into the temple and saw the money changers there. Uh, It was a den of thieves. And what he did, he made a whip and he drove them out. It's meekness on display is defending the Father's honor of the mouth. So he is to be our example. In all the texts that we read about this beatitude, point to him and he exemplified them perfectly. Perfectly. So the inheritors, we're the followers of Jesus Christ. The inheritance is our next heading. Jesus said here in Matthew 5, 5, for they shall inherit the earth. That word inherit, the original language refers to receiving one's allotted portion. And scholars believe, and I think they're right in this, that this beatitude is basically predicated on Psalm 37. Psalm 37. It's another thing about Jesus. You hear his teaching. He expounds the law. explains. He teaches from the word. Psalm 37. You can turn there with me for a moment. Because I need to work through this. And help you to see some things. That no doubt you've seen previously. But not connected in this uh, fashion. With this verse. Psalm 37. So we're going to. Just take a brief moment to work our way through the 40 verses. <laughs> Don't get nervous. I'm not, I'm not going to exposit each one of them in kind of minute detail. Don't worry about that. I'm just going to give you some highlights, kind of like 35,000 feet. Psalm 37. The Lord's promise, we're going to inherit the earth. Now, verse 11 of Psalm 37, look what it says. But the humble will inherit the land. Now, when Jesus talks about there, he expands it beyond the, the promised land. He, he says it's going to encompass more than that. We'll see a little bit later here in the sermon why that is so. But the humble will inherit the land. The humble, that's us, the meek. And this psalm refers to gentle or the meek as those who live righteously. Righteously. In verses 3 and 4 of Psalm, um, 3 and 5 of Psalm 37, trust in the Lord. 
In verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. In verse 7, it says, rest in the Lord. Be patient, wait patiently for him. Verse 9, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. So put your hope in the Lord. Verse 14, in the bottom of the verse, it says about the evil that want to slay those who are upright and conduct. Those are the humble people. Conduct is upright. Then the blameless. Verse 18 is another characterization of the meek. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. Verse 37. See again, mark the blameless man and behold the upright. Verse 31. The law of his God is in his heart. Instruction of the word, the Torah. Instruction is in the heart of this man, this woman. Notice in verse 22. For those who. For those blessed by him. Will inherit the land. There it is. <laughs> but those cursed by him will be cut off. So we see here. This Psalm 37. The characteristics that depict those who are in the kingdom. As it was in the Old Testament, so it is in the New Testament and the New Covenant. The same, the same characteristics we see. The Bible coheres from one testament to the other relative to these issues of the character of the child of God. Now, the scoffer at this beatitude is found here in our text. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Um... They think that the, 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 the reason the meek can't do it is because the meek have to acquire the earth on their own. No, it is God who will give us the earth. And this inheritance is a literal possession of the earth. When Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth, he means literally the earth. And I say that because there are some commentators who tend to spiritualize it. They say, no, it can't be that. It has to be non-territorial. What Jesus is really meaning, um, they're just going to have a higher rank. No, it's not that at all. I believe Jesus means literally what he is saying here. There's a literal, actual, physical inheritance of this planet. Well, a new planet, I'll explain that in a moment. And this inheritance is... Why do I say that? Here's why. The word earth should be taken as a literal expression for this reason. The immediate context. What's the immediate context? Verses 13 and 14 in Matthew 5. You notice something. This text you read a jillion times. You've heard it preached from. You will again too. <laughs> you are the salt of the earth. There's the word earth. In verse 14. You are the light of the world. I want you to understand something. There's a parallelism here. The word earth and word world. They are synonymous terms. 
And I believe what Jesus is talking about is the pres- the earth, the literal earth, and a literal world. Why? Because that's where believers function as salt and light. He's not talking about some spiritualized high rank. He's talking about a literal planet. So it was as it is now, it will be in the future. Shall inherit the earth. Yes, we will inherit the earth. First Corinthians three, verse twenty two, the B portion, specifically tells us that the world even now is ours. But I want you to know something. I've been saying it literally, we're gonna get it. In the coming millennial kingdom, and in the new heavens and the new earth, we will possess the earth in a fuller and richer way. When Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on this planet, he's going to rule from sea to sea. His authority and justice, all of that will be there with him in the kingdom. All the people who have been born again will go into that kingdom with him and for his rule, and we will have our portion of this earth. And then as it transitions from the millennial kingdom and there's a new heaven and new earth, that earth that we will occupy, live on in the eternity, yes, we'll own that too. It'll be ours. And for us, this is permanent. Permanent. Let me conclude. The arrogant and the power seekers, the ungodly enemies of Christ, do not inherit the earth. Many have tried. Many have sought to take it all for themselves. All we need to do is historically journey back to the 20th century. Hitler sought to take control of the world, but interestingly, (laughs) it's really interesting, he met God in a Russian winter. Remember that? If you know history, he went there in Russian, in his army, the, the, the Germans, the Nazis couldn't handle the Russian winter, and that was their uh, fate of company. That was their uh, demise. And the Allies went into Berlin, and we know the rest is history. In previous centuries, there have been the rise of other dictators. And some would-be world conquerors and those who did and those nations they did for a while the Assyrians you read about them in the Old Testament the Assyrians they were ascendant power for a while then they declined and there rose Babylon Babylon and then Greece and Rome all of them all of those nations rose because of God's purpose and plan he raised them up and when he's done with them he put them down go to Rome now the great Colosseum is just a tourist site And today, I woke up this morning, and from the Washington Post, I see where Vladimir Putin put his army on heightened nuclear alert. Perhaps going to use nuclear tactical weapons, or pretends he's going to. Because he intends to enlarge his control over a portion of the earth. But I'd like to say to Mr. Putin, Mr. Megalomaniac, do understand you're just a little man. 
and you're going to go just as far as God will allow, and then when he's done with you, you're going to go down in history just like your predecessors in the Soviet Union. God's in control. See, I'm old enough, I remember some of these guys. I can name some of these Russian leaders, and some of you say, who? Oh, I remember them. <laughs> so live with them. They're dead. But let me tell you about another person who's coming and why we're going to inherit the earth. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He and his people and his subjects will reign over the entire globe. And get this, he will not have a successor. He will reign forever and ever. So I thought about this. I thought about Handel. George Friedrich Handel. Handel's Messiah. He will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. He'll reign forever and ever. Lord of lords and king of kings. That's why we're going to inherit the earth because our king is coming. And he is able to do all of his enemies and he will be able to give all of his people their inheritance in the earth. And to that, we look forward to for his glory and for our unending joy. I'm glad to be a Christian because I know where my future is, what it's going to be, and I know who's going to accomplish it. The one who died for my sins, who was raised from the dead, who conquered sin, death, and the grave, and lives forevermore. That's your king and mine. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the truth, what you're going to do. For We thank you for uh, salvation, the great prospects that lie ahead for us who are yours. Pray for any who are listening to me at this moment who are without the Savior. You draw them to yourself. May they uh, see the truth of who Christ is and turn in repentance and faith to him. And may believers, uh, our own joy, understanding be deepened, as even we further contemplate and meditate on these truths. We pray these things in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.